Well, hey, everybody, I don't know if you've noticed, but at the end of that little video we do, like, there's this, you have to wait for that ending, right? Like, it's, is it done yet? Is it, oh, it's not done yet, and it's kind of this dramatic pause. You have to really wait. Well, that's a metaphor for what Abraham had to do in his life. He had to wait for the son. I'm kidding. That's, that's just the way the video is. There's, like, no hidden meaning behind that at all. We are in week six of the series. I'm thirsty today. I'm, I'm and we have lots of water because I'm going to be talking for a long time. So, This is week six of the series. I want to start out just by telling you a quick update because I know you're all interested. Um, my life is like the Kardashians. And you just come here to hear about my family and my life. So six weeks ago, we added a member to our family, and he was a, a, um, a Russian dwarf hamster. A Russian dwarf hamster. Um, his name was Puffball, named by, by old, named by my oldest daughter, Jackie. So this is kind of her pet, a new hamster. This is like our first pet since we've um, had kids, and so it was this great, amazing thing. Um, four weeks, uh, two weeks ago, uh, um, one month into his life, we had to say goodbye to Puffball, and um, he's now resting in our backyard underneath a, a rock in a grave, and so that's where he is. By the, and the thing is, he had this condition and he was just going to die a slow death, and so we're like, you know what, we're just going to find a humane, humane way to put him down. And so if you ever need to know how to put down a hamster, I found the excellent, like the best way to do it. And I'm not going to share it because someone's going to raise their hand and say, well, there's a better way. And I'm like, well, yeah, and it's more expensive to do it that way too. But I found a better way to do it at home. So anyway, so my question for you is, so, <laughs> you're like, where are we going Sometimes I don't know. <laughs> so Jackie was brokenhearted. She lost her hamster. She was crying over this thing, even though it bit her all the time. I, I didn't get it. <laughs> but, so we went out and, and looked at other animals. Okay, so take a guess. How many hamsters does it take to help an eight-year-old forget her dead hamster? How many? How many? One. <laughs> one to one ratio. I'm loving it. And so we, lo we lost the old hamster on a Saturday or whatever. We had to put it down. We got a new hamster that same day. She was just happy and bubbly, and we had a new pet. Um, instead of a Russian dwarf, now we have a Chinese dwarf hamster. So we're like multicultural now. We have a mixed family, a mixed family. Um, here's, here's kind of where I'm going with this. How many good things does it take to outweigh a bad thing? Like how many hamsters does it take to... to cover over the loss of one hamster? Or how many pets do you have to get to replace, you know, the old one? And you can't replace it, well, I know, but how do you cover over that? Um, here's another way of thinking of this, and maybe you've heard some of these stats before. If you've received an insult from somebody, how many compliments do you have to receive from them to make up for it? Have you heard numbers? I've heard seven, like seven is the magical number I've heard. I've heard seven to ten. But finally, this is, that's a scientific answer to a very unscientific question. Like, how do you measure that? I don't know. But they've said it takes seven good things to make up for the one bad thing. Um, another way to look at this is simply from a scientific level. And I know this isn't a thing, but just in general terms, how much positive energy does it take to make up for negative energy? Well, in the perfect scientific world, it would be 50% plus 0.01%, right? Positive to outweigh the negative. And so there's different ways to measure this. Well, how much good does it take to out outweigh the bad? 
And I'm going to kind of leave it at that for now because as we get into Abraham's story today, he's going to wonder the same thing. He's going to ask, well, can God treat the good and the bad the same? And how much good does it take to outweigh the bad? And that's kind of where I'm going to leave you right now because even more of this tension, this is open, I'm opening the curtains for you. Often uh, in, this, in the first part of the message, I'll create what I call tension. And so you're on the edge of your seat and you're like, oh, how is he going to fix this one? Well, when it comes to righteousness and wickedness, well, what does God do? Like, how much righteousness does it take to cover up wickedness? So we're going to pick up right actually where we left off last week, where um, we, uh, Ben took us through part five of the series. It was Genesis chapter 18, where um, three men came, were traveling by, and Abraham said, hey, guys, you need to come. I'm going to feed you, and you need to rest your feet for a while. So Abraham just invites these three travelers, but it's later we, we learn that these weren't three travelers. This was God and two angels that had come to visit. So Abraham prepares this feast. And by the way, Ben missed a major point from last week. <laughs> I'm going to fill you in in just a minute. So these three travelers come. Abraham prepares a feast for them. They eat. Um, and then God says to Abraham... Your wife, Sarah, is going to be with child in the next year. And she's about 90 years old at this time. Now, Sarah's in the tent behind, and she's listening through the tent wall. And as soon as she hears that she's going to have a baby, what does she do? She laughs. She, like, rolls around. Like, this is beyond cat videos. She's rolling around laughing because she's like, there's no way this is going to happen. And it's, it's this scoffing kind of laugh. And here's the really, really awkward part. God hears her laughing, and he says, Sarah, why are you laughing? And Sarah's like, I wasn't laughing. (laughs) God's like, I kind of heard you laughing, so I, I, I know you were laughing. And Sarah's just, like, standing there. And even as you read the narrative, it's like there's this awkward part where, like, nothing's happening. And it just says the next thing that happens, and this is where we pick up the story today, is that the guys walk out, the three men walk out. Now, what Ben focused on last week, wasn't it amazing that even at 90 years, you know, Sarah could have a child? But here's the part he really missed. Get out your pens. This is good. Even at such an old age, here's what really amazes me. Sarah, (laughs) I can't keep a straight face. Sarah was still flexible enough to put her foot in her mouth. That's the big takeaway for me last week. Okay. We're still in chapter 18. So so these three men are walking away from dinner. They're done, and they're going to leave. And so Abraham does the nice thing that every good host does. He walks them to the door, except they're outside. And so Abraham is walking them to the edge of the camp. And here's the important part. As they're walking, this is kind of what starts the entire thing. As they're walking... Abraham and these three men can look down and see, sprawling out below them, the great city of Sodom. And so this this great area with the city, all these settlements, all these people, and they can see it all from their viewpoint. And we don't know exactly what sparks, what happens next. Maybe it was just God taking the initiative, or maybe Abraham had pointed out to Sodom, and he said, hey, hey, God, my nephew Lot lives down there with his family. I hope everything's okay. Maybe Abraham said something like that. As far as we know, God just came up with this idea at the spur of the moment. He's like, 
Abraham, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to anyway. So as they're looking at Sodom, this is uh, the way it unfolds in Genesis 18. God says, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do down there? To Sodom, to Gomorrah, to his nephew Lot. Should I, should I keep that back from him? It's almost like he's saying, Abraham, I shouldn't tell you this. You have no right to know this. But here's why I'm going to tell you my plan for that city. And God goes on. I'm going to tell you, Abraham, because Abraham, surely you will become a great and powerful nation. I've chosen him so that he will direct his children, his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Um, So long story short, Abraham, I'm going to let you in on some plans because you need to be able to navigate issues like this in a way that is right and just. Now, many of you know how this story ends with Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Some of you maybe don't know. Um, If you don't know, you can read Genesis 19 when you get home, but basically Abraham doesn't do a very good job of of pleading for them. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, Here's some things to note going into this. Uh, God invites us to put ourselves in Abraham's shoes here. Because God is saying, Abraham, this is going to be a test of how good, how right, how just you are, because this is not an easy situation to deal with. So I'm going to tell you what I'm planning to do. Now, here's the other thing to keep in mind. This conversation that God is about to have with Abraham has absolutely zero impact on what happens next. Like what we're talking about today, you could take this out of the Bible and you could just keep reading and the story would go on the exact same way. This has zero impact on the events, but... This has a huge impact on Abraham. And so as they're at this vantage point, God says, okay, Abraham, I'm going to let you in here. This is important. Here's what I see when I look at this city. The Lord said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down. And see for myself if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, if, if this is all just a sham, I'll know. But I'm going to go down there anyway. And I just want to focus on that. You see, when God sees a mess that needs to be addressed, a big one, a lot of times he puts himself into it in order to resolve it. Uh, the other thing to note here is that there's this outcry. And get out your pens. Do you know what that word outcry literally means? It means to cry out. <laughs> People have been crying out to God, like they're saying, God, 911, God, we're in distress. God, why are you allowing these things to happen? God, this isn't right. Where are you, God? Where are you, God? There's been this outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the other thing God notices is that their sin is grievous. Like, not borderline, not slightly worse than average. Their, their sin is grievous. So you have to wonder, well, what did God see? And if you really want to see an interesting story, uh, look at what happens in Genesis 19 when God spends a few hours in that city or when his angels spend a few hours in that city. See what happens to them. Um, it's it's us, uh, f- several centuries later that the prophet Ezekiel um, actually revealed something for us. There he is. And uh, this is what he said. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. This was what was so wrong with them. 
Sodom and her daughters, so the area of Sodom, they were arrogant, they were overfed, and they were unconcerned. Oh, that explains it. Well, here's what he's saying. Arrogant means that they were so puffed up in themselves that they had no room and no desire to hear from God. They were arrogant, uh, too full of themselves. They were overfed, which isn't literally meaning that they were overweight, like it's an overweight city and I don't like overweight people. That's not what God was saying. He was saying that they were taking so much for themselves, more that they needed, that they were oppressing other people. And then he says that these people were under, unconcerned. So they were overfed, underconcerned. In other words, they didn't see that they were doing anything wrong here. What's the big deal? We're just taking our share of things. This is it's a dog-eat-dog world. This is how we do things. And so when God looked at his city, he saw people that were haughty. And to put it nicely, they did not help the poor and needy. In reality, they were creating more poor and needy people as they were overfed and underconcerned. They were haughty and they did detestable things. Because that's what happens when all you focus on is your own appetite and your own desire and you're unconcerned about God's plan. So God looked at this and he said, I must do something. So he says, Abraham, I shouldn't tell you this, but that city down there, I'm going to go see how bad it is. Now, isn't this where we would like to pause and say, well, where's the God of mercy? Because when I look at the sins of Sodom, it's like, well, isn't, that, isn't there a little bit of that in me? Isn't there some of this arrogance? Isn't there some of this oppression of others for my own sake? Isn't there some of this unconcern, some apathy for the things that go on? Isn't all that kind of true for all of us? And so we would love for God to look at Sodom and Gomorrah and just say, I'm going to have mercy. I'm going to forgive. It's all good. And that's what we would love to see. So why doesn't God have mercy? Where's the mercy? Well, here's the thing about mercy. Mercy means that for the person who's being oppressed, sometimes God has to take away the oppressor. Mercy for the oppressed means God must take away the oppressor. And I want you to remember this for later because God has had mercy on you. So who was the oppressor? Who did God have to destroy? Um, That's kind of just a thing I want to park in your mind for now. So we're going to park it on the screen as fill-in number two or one. Number one works too. Sometimes mercy requires judgment. Sometimes to have mercy on someone means you have judgment on their oppressors. And that's exactly what we're seeing in Sodom and Gomorrah. The act of mercy is for God to act in judgment, to take away the evil and answer the, the prayers of the people who have been crying out to him. Now this puts Abraham in a tough spot. God says, Abraham, I'm going to answer the prayers of the oppressed people and of the people who are crying out. I'm going to take away this evil. And meanwhile, Abraham is thinking, but what about my nephew? I need to stand up for him. I need to do something to help him. And so Abraham is like, well, what do I do? What do I do? Well, the impressive thing or the amazing thing is that as we go on, God gives him a chance to say something. Here's how it goes on. So the men turned away. So the two angels, there were three, three men, two of them angels, one God. So the two men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. 
He's just standing there thinking, what are those two men going to find when they get there? And what's God going to do to that place? So Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And when it hit his heart, what was going to happen? He approached God. This is the first priestly act we see in the Bible where Abraham approaches God on behalf of someone else. Um, and so Abraham knows this is delicate. He's like, well, I can't downplay the wickedness of these people. I can't just go up to God and say, well, they're human. I can't go to God and say, well, give me a few days. Um, I'll go talk to them, and maybe we can straighten this up. Um, but Abraham doesn't go and say, well, let me take some people out of the city first, and then you can do with it what you will. Abraham takes an entirely different route because God deals with people as a group, and so Abraham pleads for the group. So here's how Abraham goes forward. Abraham said, God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham knew the opposite was true. Um, A lot of times in the Bible, you see examples of individuals who messed up and the punishment was was, um, on their entire group. Um, Like there's one guy named Achan, Uh, who went off and he got some plunder he wasn't supposed to get and he took it home and he dug it uh, a hole under his tent and he hid it there. And when it was found out, not only was Achan destroyed, but his entire household was destroyed because what everyone knew was that when one person messes up, the punishment can affect many people. Abraham is wondering if the opposite can be true too. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Could it be that the righteous could somehow protect the wicked? And he says, well, this is kind of, you know, just a a crazy idea. Let's look at this in an actual scenario, God. And so Abraham gives an actual what if. Well, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Now let's use this water here for a little bit. So each of these has 500 milliliters of water. Let's just take a decimal point away just for fun. Let's say each of these represents 50. And there's 10 of them, so that means we have 500 people here. Okay, 500 people. So that's a very conservative estimate for Sodom. There's probably 1,000, 2,000, several thousand, whatever. We just have 500 people here representing the city of Sodom. And Abraham says, well, out of all this city here, what if 50 of them are righteous? What if 50 of them have this faith in you, God, that they are looking to you, they want to honor you, they want to serve you? Um, They know your promise to send a Savior, and they're anticipating that. What about these 50? Will you really sweep away and not spare the place for the sake of these 50 people? Would you really just destroy the whole thing? Abraham is passionate about this. So he goes on even more. He goes, far be it. Next slide, please. Far be it from you to do such a thing. God. Have you ever prayed like that? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the world do what is right? How's Abraham feeling? I'd say angry. He's in that angry stage, angry phase. Now, the reason he's angry is because he thinks he knows the answer to this. He thinks that God's answer is going to be, you know what, the the wickedness of Sodom is just so great. 50 people is just such a small price to pay. 
It's acceptable losses. It's collateral damage. We're just going to destroy the whole thing and be done with his wickedness. And Abraham is, is angry that God would actually do such a thing. And so what happens next is completely unprecedented for Abraham. This is not what he was expecting. God answered him this. If I find 50 righteous people in that city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. 50 people to save a city. And we're going to see next, this made Abraham stumble back. Like he's grasping for where to go with this because he was not expecting this answer. So this was a new idea that God was now sharing with Abraham. So we're going to make this fill in number two for our sheets today. God will, he has the potential to, he is willing to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. And I'm not saying that this is a promise of God, that as long as you have like one righteous person in a group or 50 righteous people, that nothing bad will happen. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that as far as just a what-if situation, if you have righteous people, God would spare the group that they're in. This idea makes Abraham stagger backwards, and we see that in these next words. We're going to kind of go fast forward through the last part of this story. So Abraham spoke up again. So the first time he was like this, he was angry with God. This time he's going to be like, I'm sorry, and and humble before God. So he spoke up again, and he said, okay, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, even though I'm just dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous people is five less than 50? Would you destroy the whole city because we're missing five people? You know, it's just, it's so close. Would you really destroy it for, for if there's 45 people in there? And, and the answer that God gave him was, if I find 45 there, I'll save it. And so he's like, wow, 45 people to save a city. Amazing. He goes on, okay. Well, once again, he spoke up. Well, what if only 40 can be found there? By the way, this part of the message was brought to you by Aquafina. Pure water, perfect taste. (laughs) What if only 40 can be found there? He said, okay, for the sake of 40, I would still spare the city. I will not bring it under judgment. He goes on, okay, I've been really bold. Next slide. I've been really bold. May the Lord not be angry, but just let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? By the way, if you're a science person, I do have marks on these, so this is like accurate for for our presentation today. What if only 30? And God answered, if I find 30 people in this city, I will spare it. Um, He goes on. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, okay, let's keep going here. What if only 20 can be found? God said, for the sake of these 20, I will not destroy it. And he's saying, how far can I push my luck? How long can I keep rolling? How long can I double down? So Abraham says, all right, uh, may the Lord not be angry. Let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found? What if only 10 can be found in the midst of this huge, sprawling city? And God said, Abraham, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Um, Next slide. That's where the conversation ends. Um, Abraham goes home. 
God goes on his way wherever he goes when he's not in human form. Uh, so, so that's the end of the conversation. And I, I really wonder, well, why did Abraham stop at 10? Why didn't he keep going? Why didn't he go down to five? Why didn't he go down to one? God, if there's this one righteous person, would you spare the city? You see, the reason Abraham stopped asking is because Abraham knew the answer already. Of all the people in Sodom, he knew four of them. He knew his nephew Lot and his, his, his nephew's um, wife and his nephew's two daughters. There's four people he knew in Sodom. And as his numbers got lower and lower, he was realizing, my nephew is not one of those. Um, the righteousness that God would need is not going to be found. And so he stops, he stops, he stops. What if 10 can be found? God says, sure, sure, for the sake of 10 righteous people, absolutely, spare the whole place. Here's what I wish Abraham had asked. How many righteous people would you need to find in order to save the city? That would have saved us six slides <laughs> and about six minutes and a lot of water. But wouldn't that have been interesting? God, how many righteous people would you need to find in order to save a city? Like, what would it take to save a city? And that answer would not come until much, much later. Now, the question for us today isn't necessarily, well, how much would it take to save a city or how much would it take to save Sodom because none of us live in Sodom or Gomorrah. Um, what would it take to spare a world? What would it take to save a world? And l- let's look at the same, okay, same idea, same pictures as Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, we have 7.4 billion people, right? Well, God, what if we found 500 million righteous people? Would you save the world then? What would God's answer be? Absolutely. I'll spare the whole world. Well, God, what if we can find 300 million righteous people? Sure, I'll spare it for them. What if we can find 100 million? Absolutely, that's the answer. The question we need to ask, though, is, God, how many would it take to spare the world? And he would answer, more than you have. What Abraham knew is what the apostles knew in the New Testament, and it's the same thing that the prophets knew before them. It's the same thing we know today. That's summarized here in Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even 10, not even one, no one. So what would it take to spare a world? Well, if you ask God that question, well, what does it take to spare a world? He would say it only takes one because there's one race, one people under judgment, one city, one group of people. All it would take is one, and I would spare them from judgment. Now, get this. This is what Jesus told his disciples the night before he died. He was sitting with them, and he was praying to his Father in heaven with his disciples right in front of him. And this is what Jesus told them before he even died. He said, for them, he's talking to God, for these people, for these disciples, I sanctify myself. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm setting myself apart from everything else. I am righteous so that they too may be truly sanctified, so that they too may be righteous with me. And it was there at the cross and in the empty tomb that Jesus made that happen. One 
man to save a world. Here's how Jesus did it. We're going to come back to this idea with, with mercy, and then we're going to uh, wrap things up here. Um, so when, when Jesus did this, when he accomplished this, he combined mercy and grace. Fill in number three. He brought together mercy and grace. You remember mercy, sometimes mercy requires judgment. So in order to take away the outcry, God had to take away the oppressor. Now the oppressor was me and it was you. But he combined mercy with grace because he turned that punishment back on himself. God, what would it take to save a world? What would it take to save a city? His answer, one one righteous one, the one that I have provided. Now, apart from law, a righteousness from God has been revealed and it's given to you through the one man, Jesus Christ. So what I want to do, um, ending up here real quickly, is I want to um, send you off with just a quick application because when it comes to the way Ad, uh, Abraham dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah, I think I would have dealt a lot differently like, I would have said, yeah, God, we need to get my nephew out of that mess. So if you could just spare him and destroy everything, that'd be great. But Abraham did not take the role of condemner, and he did not take the role of judge. Abraham took the, the role of defender, of defense attorney, and he stood up for those who were still in their wickedness. Now, my, my closing question for you is, what is it that gets you angry that got like, um, like Abraham got angry. Or here's fill in number four. It's, it's the closing question. What outcry makes you approach God? Like what is it about our world that makes you say, oh my goodness, God, what's going on? Where are you? This can't exist. We need your help. Help, help. What is it that fuels your outcry? And what if you could respond to that in the same way Abraham did? Instead of saying, okay, God, if you could just destroy it all, that'd be great. You know, what if we could take a different path and say, what if, the righteousness of God can make a change. What if they just need to know that he has saved the city, he has saved the world, and the righteousness that they have been lacking has been fulfilled? What if we took that approach? Um, what I'm excited about is if you're meeting with your growth group this week, you can talk about this question, you can come up with examples, you can kind of think about it and talk about it. Um, um, so if, if you're uh, meeting with your growth group this week, that's awesome. Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to meet back here, and we're actually going to see the tail end of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to see what happens with Lot and his wife and, and his daughters afterwards, and so you won't want to miss it. It'll be great. Um, let's close today with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, when you spoke with Abraham, you revealed to him that the righteousness of just a few can spill over and spare a city from judgment. And we would not see that fulfilled until you sent your son who was truly righteous, truly set apart and sanctified from wickedness. And as long as we stand in him, we are spared from judgment. Um, thank you for that gift of faith which binds us to him and which uh, helps us, which enables us to hold on to his promises of forgiveness and hope and joy. Uh, let that connection grow stronger so that we can lead others to see the righteousness you have provided and the safety that we have. I pray all these things in Jesus' name as we join in the prayer he taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, We're going to continue with an opportunity to not only support the ministry of Bethlehem, but also give back to God our first fruits in the form of an offering. Um, As we do that, could you please fill out the connection, excuse me, the connection books um, on the inside and outside of each row. And um, ushers, you can go ahead and come forward and start collecting it at this time. Um, because we're going to have a couple of our teens come up and share their experience from the Wells Youth Rally that they got to go to this last year. Um, So if you guys want to go ahead and come up, I'll grab your mic here.